Welcome to the Dystopian Republic. I am your host, Raul Guerrero. Our story for today begins on the civil dawn of July 2nd, 1960. Miles into the Gulf of Guinea, islands, big, small, flat, and bumpy, amassed in a circular cluster of tropical land pieces known to the world simply as Robapel. Within that cluster was Refuji Khan, an island with a narrow yet towering hillside separating its western and eastern halves. The western half was an idyllic, affluent suburb, while its eastern neighbor was a rustic industrial city. Bromelian expats were the predominant people from the west's smashing beaches to the east's urban shores. At an eastern hospital's delivery room, Kiana Benitez had the focus of everyone's adoration in her kindergarten arms, her twin brothers, Brett Jr. and Rhett. The purities designing her brothers' faces awoke in her a lioness completely under the heel of compulsive obsession. An approaching nurse scowled Kiana's scorpionic facial features. Kiana met the nurse's request for the twins with a shake of her head, pulling them in when said nurse tried taking them away. Her parents, Brett Sr. and Abby, were her two reasons for not letting her brothers go. Kiana's five years of life have been a one-on-two antipathy between her and her dad and mom. Her father was a beer-bellied inebriate living off supplemental security income and whatever dollars Abby made from selling her sylph-like body to sex-hungry men and women. Their personal demons threw them down the sinkholes of beer and heroin, bruising her arms with injection sites and swelling his belly with liquid. The conditions they were in had Kiana fearing for her brothers' innocences, vowing not to let their first five years be the half-decade that became hers. In the spur of the moment, she leapt from her seat and ran off with the twins. Her run down the hall and toward the exit repeatedly slideshowed at full tilt the doom that awaited them under their parents' care. That doom befell on all three of them. Soon after, Kiana came meters short of escaping with them into the night. The five years following that failed escape attempt were turbulent roller coasters of extreme highs and equally so lows. Brett and Abby told their three kids at nauseam that they loved them with all their hearts. They made sure 
the twins had pampers to wear and formulas to eat, and that Kiana had toys to play with and supplies to learn with. Up until the boys started school, no physical punishments of any kind were inflicted on them. The discipline Brett Jr. and Rhett faced whenever they misbehaved were within the realms of responsible parenting. Never did their mom and dad insolently nor violently bring them to book. Who their parents were between the times their sleeps ended and began were of no danger to them or anyone else. The love Brett and Abby had for their boys didn't fool Kiana for a second. Her reason for seeing through that nurturing love was that her parents treated her the same way from the time she was born to her first school day. The good natures her parents displayed dissolved into nothing when it came time to let their addictions feed. Brett and Abby had long mastered the art of limiting their addictive indulgences to after tucking their kids in for bed, not wanting to put their safety at risk by laying bare his drunken and her drugged-up selves. Their masteries of that art were without blemish until one late night when Kiana was four. The Benitezes originally lived in Alexisville, Las Grandes Cascadas, the capital of Bromelia, from 1952 to 1959, when Alexis Saviola Jr. ruled the nation with a red fist, yellow hammer, and sickle. Brett and Abby lived off the power their mothers and fathers garnered as rewards for the crucial roles they played in Gregorio Sr.'s 1952 downfall. They and Kiana were three among the elite who sat right below the royalty that comprised Alexis's inner circle. Their privileges, while not the utmost, were spacious, comfortable, and secure. Everything they needed from three meals every day to a home with two stories and yards was given to them. The middle-class life they thought would last forever didn't survive to see the 60s as an American-backed coup led by Carlisle Valverde III overthrew Alexis's Soviet-backed government a few months after they fled for Robapel, fearing how their futures would pan out should they stay. The hasty retreat they beaded became their source of regret, castigating them for deserting a revolution that could have survived had they stayed and fought. Few days went by before alcohol and drugs became their ways of dulling that shame. But in doing so, the fuses leading into their tempers grew shorter and more volatile. Tensions Kiana would faintly hear and think little of, and that night towards the end of 1959 
was no exception. A nightmare Kiana dreamt prompted her to take a walk to the kitchen for a glass of water. Her want for Adam Springs bottled water doomed her to seeing her parents looking their absolute worst. Appy's withered skin and frail bones undyed her shock whiter than snow. Brett's veiny bloating and sickly look stressed her harrowing tighter than ischemic chest pains. The shock and horror paralyzing Kiana put the most appall-inducing of all stops to her parents' injecting and drinking. Her feelings were exactly why Abby and Brett didn't want her seeing them destroy themselves. Their souls knew full well that their intoxicated minds would have their bodies act on their angriest and most hateful instincts. The two Kiana relied on for protection were now the very creatures they were tasked with protecting her from. Standing and inching forward, they spooked her into running away in fear, cornering her in her bedroom closet. Abby and Brett took turns trying to get Kiana to hug them, reminding her that they're still her mom and dad. The lightning-fast slaps and screaming scorns Kiana threw and spat at them turned their smiles upside down, tinting their faces a hot and humid red. Abby grabbed her by the chest and shoulder blade, pinning her on the bed as Brett pulled down her pants and undies to whip her bare cheeks with his raw leather belt. As scared as Kiana was, cornered in the closet, the whips marking her backside amped up to eleven her horror. As the number of marks increased, her weeping pleas for Brett to stop his whipping and for Abby to let her go were ignored. The adrenaline pumping Brett's veins overdrove the high tingling his brain. A high of an equivalent nature shackled Abby into keeping the bounds on Kiana as that hour of darkness went on and on. Their empty nearing staminas brought their whipping to an exhausting close, but not without them telling Kiana if she thought her marks hurt now to wait till next time as that'll be when they'll make those marks sting worse. Left alone and emotionally annihilated, Kiana shaped her posture to resemble a prenatal fetus remaining where she wakefully laid well into the next day. The wounds those hours opened up stung as sharply that night as they did five years into the future. Now 1965, a year and a half had gone by since Robapel was colonized by Bromelia, led by Adalino Agnone Sr., an immigrant population of Bromelians instituted a systemic segregation that relegated the Robapelese natives to second-class citizenship. West Rufuchi Khan, his self-proclaimed capital, was where his immigrants lived in the poshest laps of luxury, exploiting 
the labors their eastern counterparts were to do day in and day out with next to no pay to show for it. By Adalino's decree, all Robapelis who could work and were of working age had to under penalty of penal servitude. His decree forced people like Brett and Abby to work the assembly lines at the rubber processing factory, getting them off the beer, heroin, welfare, and prostituting. However, their jobs got them hooked on a whole new drug that kept them working like machines non-stop. Cocaine. And just like that, their body destroying was back and better than ever. Kiana had since grown into an honor roll student, earning straight A's and topping the lists of every principal she ever had. Her academic smarts won her the respect of her peers, so much so that her invitation to meet Alalino at his gubernatorial palace was met with a school-wide standing ovation. The accolades Kiana had to her name were her escapes from her home life, a situation none of her peers knew about as Abby and Brett spared no cost in keeping to each other. That aside, the time she spent with her brothers patched much of the cracks her parents split without breaking. The successes Brett Jr. and Rhett had in school were excellent in their own rights. At age four, Brett became the youngest Bromelian to ever win a spelling bee, beating an 11-year-old former champion who couldn't spell dehumanize. Rhett won first prize at the talent show for his colorful speed sketching of a flying angel outperforming a trio of nine-year-olds who slipped up the ending of their flamenco routine. Kiana couldn't craft sentences that could appropriately describe how proud she was to be their big sister, going so far as to convince Adelino to allow her to bring them along as her guests. Her brothers' fragilities thickened her skin and toughened her spine, but also softened her heart and tendered her spirit. On the 12th of June, Kiana was to babysit her brothers as her parents reported for yet another sunrise to sunset shift. Her parents sternly warned her and her brothers to remain in the home or else. That threat did little to face Kiana, but a lot to frighten her brothers. Though she and her parents haven't spoken of the whipping since it happened, the scars it left still stung five years later. Kiana crafted ham and cheese sandwiches for her and her brothers to munch on, talking about the futures they vowed will make better than the lives they're living now. They envisaged trashing the red wasps their parents bred into their bloodstreams, and what they've accomplished were great leaps forward 
in that regard. Additionally, they all had pen pals from the West who fell head over heels for their high IQs, kind hearts, and desires to succeed. Their friendships were strictly within the confines of the letters they exchanged, and for good reason. It was unlawful for Westerners and Easterners to interact non-essentially, as it was for either side to do the aforementioned with the Robopelese natives in the other islands. For the rest of the day, Kiana and her brothers had to pull a magical nanny from the sky on their dark, dull crib, a woman they fought the world of for her wonderful cheeriness. The adventure she took the children she cared for on made them feel rich and special for two hours. So, like the nanny, Kiana took her brothers' hands, leading the way to that musical adventure. It kicked off with late morning spoonfuls of the purest, sweet crystallines around. Then at noon, they had an hour of festivity that smiled and cheered, followed by a one o'clock love letter to the sound of lively amusement. The middle and late afternoons saw one sing-along jingle on by after the next, shedding away the skins that showed their extremely poor states, exposing pigment layers silking in rich peaches. Their day together transformed their penurious living space into a panage box dusted and gleamed by frolic and magic, and like such dusts and gleams, it was a wonderland not equipped to survive above the waters of their imagination, dropping them off at the cluttered-up beam-ends they were on. Their make-believe adventure, now over, all they had to buy the time was eat, nap, and be bored out of their minds. That weary lack of interest irked Kiana into throwing caution to the wind, suggesting to her brothers that they call their pen pals in the downstairs lobby. The fear trembling her brothers vehemented their refusal to follow her suggestion. Kiana puzzled out there and then the menacing power her mom and dad had over them. She explained to them how their parents won't be back until hours after they've gone to bed, giving them more than enough time to make and hang up their calls. Her rationale didn't entirely convince either of the twins, engendering her to voluntarily take all the blame should they get caught. Kiana gave her brothers her word of honor that they won't be hurt no matter the outcome. Her brothers grudgingly relented, apprehensively holding her to that solemn promise. The lobby had a whooshy, buzzy hum that made its dimly lit, concrete grays more drearily noticeable. Its detached staff comforted Kiana and her brothers into stepping inside that phone booth. The dollar's worth of coins they saved up allowed them 
to extend their call's duration enough for them and their friends to talk sufficiently. Their call opened with a forefin back of enthusiastic greetings, imagining themselves in a six-strong embrace sweeter than pie and tighter than tied shoes. The two trios ran down the lane of how you've been, all is well, how about you, hanging in there and can't wait to meet soon. It was a vocal stride that bore the sweetest of sensual fruits in spite of the strictest of legal shackles. Like the Benitez kids, the three pen pals too were pupils of brilliance. Admired by most and loathed by few, the grounds they walked on spittled in dried kisses. The girl Kiana has been writing to was a writer and poet whose methodic strokes served the laurels she earned on a silver platter. Brett's friend in writing was among the youngest in high society whose beauty and charm melted the hearts of her admirers. As for Rhett, his pen pal was a caregiver whose warm-hearted firmness had boys and girls falling in line, playing her diverting games and reciprocating her warm feelings. The date of Kiana's forthcoming visit was exactly a year to the day they received their first letters from their pen pals. Why three Westerners, as well thought of as their pen pals, would have a thing to do with them was utterly bewildering. Nonetheless, they were more than grateful that their pen pals took such interest in them, viewing it as their tickets out of the down and out east and into the up and in west. Their pen pals were also selected to visit Adelino as their talents too caught his eye. That event in their minds was perfect for all of them to meet in person for the first time. The trios closed their call with hugs and kisses in human voice form. Their hang-ups deflated the pressure bloating Kiana and her brothers' nerves. Walking back to the apartment, Kiana swore to the supreme being she'd never again have her brothers join her in taking such an extreme risk. At any rate, they're happy that they started and finished their call without their parents knowing. They made their way inside, and what their eyes beheld made their blood run at absolute zero. Mishmashes of appliances, furniture, trash, and other items disordered the living room, kitchen, hallway, bathroom, and two bedrooms. Standing before them, their parents' minds were on a warpath hotter than the bluest flames. Brett had in his hands the belt he used to whip Kiana and the letters she sent and received. Abby's hands held the letters the twins gave and were given, as well as splintery strands of rope and duct tape. On its own, the situation laid before Brett and Abby was already quite grievous, but the reasons why 
they came home hours earlier than expected made it fully calamitous. Working like normal, their supervisor called them into the boss's office. The boss explained to them that loyalty was a virtue all Bromelians at home and abroad placed great importance on. He knew well that Easterners like them didn't have it easy, but still felt that adversity was no excuse to conspire to rebel against Adelino. Breton Abbey squarely denied taking part in any seditious activity, repeating their denials, yet have no evidence to back them up. However, the boss presented to them type and handwritten transcripts from shadowminders detailing their efforts to recruit them for a seditionist plot they claimed to have spent years planning. Abby explained that she and Brett were mad how tough their lives had become, assuring him that the plot wasn't anything they could carry out, let alone make successful, even if they so desired to. Brett added that neither he nor Abby had the funds, connections, or bravery to even think of taking action on their plot. The boss pointed out their elite statuses when Alexis ruled Bromelia, saying that communist elites like them had a lot to thank Adelino for, as he was merciful enough to allow them to be contributing members of his society. The shivers he saw them shake got him to think of what Adelino would do, taking him to the conclusion that the best action would be to fire them and make sure they never work again. That action, while lenient and sound, was quite the opposite in implementation. Breton Abbey knew well that not having a job meant a long stay at one of the many penal colonies Adelino set up across his archipelago. They heard a lot about how the conditions at those camps normalized the spread of disease and the occurrence of injuries, and to make matters even scarier, everyone who voiced those rumors have since vanished completely out of sight. As devastating as their firings were, the letters they just read through increased the verdicts, staring them in the face by a substantial amount. In a criminal code consisting of six levels, their failure to work was a level three offense, whilst what they unknowingly let their kids engage in was a crime of a level one magnitude. The differences in level stemmed from the former impeding the nation's ability to make money and the latter threatening the very segregation, making what Adelino thought was the ideal society hum. Their rage trip began with punches, kicks, throws, and slams, rupturing the blood vessels underlying the skins of their kids. The beatings, though unpleasant, weren't all that different from what Kiana sustained. However, 
that didn't lessen the sorrow excruciating Kiana or her brothers, breaking apart the promise she made to them like ear-damaging decibels moving a windshield. With Brett's subduing help, Abby wrapped her rope around Kiana's neck, choking her airwaves into making her brain drop her into a semi-conscious limp. Almost unable to move a muscle, much less stand up, Kiana watched helplessly as her parents uncaringly and heinously whipped her brothers to pulps bloodier than tortured animals. The diabolical turns the whippings took crawled Kiana's skin, froze her spine, sank her heart, and broke her spirit. It took coronary thromboses amplified by years of severe addiction to drop Brett supine on the bed and Abby prone on the couch. Though the whippings had ended, the anguish leaving Kiana in tatters progressed past sunset, through the night, and into the next sunrise. The hollowness silently whistling in the apartment warmed the stench stinking and misting up its air. A virtuous snapshot of what was the Benitez family rested in shatters, fitting in with its wider dirtiness. Brett and Abby hadn't moved a muscle since falling into their respective furniture, and their daughter and sons also remained where they rested yesterday. Prickings of conscience presented to Kiana a floating circle of scarring ghosts. It furiously jetted scorn on her for not protecting her brothers from the hurt and injuries they sustained. The contrition in Kiana's veins throbbed so painfully that it inaudibly collapsed her into a dejected fit of yelling and weeping. Her hushed yells and weeps buried the hatchets her brothers were ready to verbally blow her mind and soul out with. The sincerity they could feel emanate from her body made the world they meant to her plain to see. All Brett and Brett wanted now was for Kiana to have them in her arms where she told them they were on the day they were born. The forgiveness from their hairs down to their chins gradually rebuilt her out of the tatters that internally and externally left her in ruins. Her gratitude was so many meters up in the sky that there was too little air for her to utter one thank. So she settled with picking the twins up like she always did and taking a nap with them in the closet they shared. Three hours had passed and their parents still hadn't so much as flinched an eyelid. Whether they were no longer living or still knocked out from the previous afternoon was unclear. No matter the condition, Kiana, Brett Jr., and Rhett huddled for physical and emotional relief, not having slept well or enough but failed to feel it come about. That lack of success 
glared Kiana's glum in the cloud-burning humidity and glummed her brothers' glares in the musty toxicity, granting the four horsewomen of the apocalypse their chance to drag her mind all the way down to Tofei. The gun and knife she took from her dad's lock and key box consumed her with desire for revenge. Kiana ran her knife through the internal carotids lining Abby's neck, dragging her off the sofa and dropping her hind first. Too deep in her ill health to fight or yell, her red liquided frail struggles oiled the wheels of Kiana's stabbing. Short quick breaths muck-sweated Kiana's blood-stained self, driving the blade into her mom's sternum. Her father's totter to the line of slashes scared him witless by exposing him to the tenebrousness clouding over Kiana's staring bloodlust. It ruined his chance to get out of Dodge, causing Kiana to shoot his guts and heart in and fire onto his back a dotted grid. Clinging to life, Brett knitted his brows at an offended Kiana like she played him false. His crawls cut the powerfulness she stood over him with down to size. Her fatal shot to his head splattered his blood on her face and clothes, watering her down to a babyish penitence. She fell to a sit that pointed her bowed head at her quadriceps, slamming her eyes closed and deep-breathing her way into soundless black. Kiana came back to where she was just prior to her mind's daymarish fall, her brothers resting in her forearms, their love for her put their hate for their parents to shame, convincing her to focus more on protecting them and herself maternally clasping the twins above their hips, their exit from the apartment aroused not one mutter or budge from either parent. Irate spats and hollow booms gipped her walk with them across the hall, out the project and down an avenue of disrepaired projects. Their bad night's sleep caught up with them the moment they left the city proper, ultimately descending them into a tender, deep sleep on a concealed roadside's plump brush. Their eyes creeping open two hours later, they smiled their lips at each other and the jungle's tuneful wildlife. Her brothers' guileless grins enticed her into tightening her cuddle, their hypothermic limbs having her fear the worst, she undraped her arms and pounded her fists and knees to get herself prone. Her childlike pleas for them to wake up were met with weak pulses and dying spirits. Those replies led her to the reddish-black sores poisoning their blood cells, their fevers, struggles to breathe, lowering blood pressure and speeding heart rates told her 
to get them help while she still could, scaring her into forcing her whimpers in back of the wild tunes. Her fast stomps down the brushy tangles wiggled under the combined weight of her brothers and the jaws of death they were inside of. The air's total saturation with water vapor tried its hardest to force the twins past their final exits, harshening the tremors and excess gas priming her ghastly misery for an epic eruption. The deaths her brothers were near got her thinking of how impossible living life would be for her not having them physically present. Her nearing failure to save them when she could have from an event she caused took her guilt toward the point of wishing death upon herself, notwithstanding the phobia of not seeing them on the other side. It truly was her darkest of hours, followed by 60-minute periods even darker. Her stomping for help, despite its desponding hope, didn't stop Kiana from wanting to extinguish and drench the fire and brimstone she unwillingly set ablaze. That persistence to her avail paid off in the form of a hidden dark farm on a deforested grass plain. The black Angus cattle, bighorn sheep, red jungle fowls, and Siberian huskies slinked a tatter gluing hope into her cochleas. Their moos, bleats, clucks, and puffs brought new life to her hope that she could keep her brothers' spirits from rising out of their bodies. That new lease her hope obtained brought to the center of her attention the business of finding people to take in her and the boys. She had no idea the tunnel she ran through, one few knew existed, took her into West Rufuji-Khan, the half that people from East Rufuji-Khan, such as herself and her brothers, weren't allowed to step foot in. Kiana looked left to a sight that was to her a saintly angel descending from the sky to bless her and the twins with her embraceive, uncorrupted hands. That angelic sight was the three pen pals she and her brothers had been writing to in the flesh. Ramira Bedoya, Adalina Aunyon, and Kimi Gurlone. Her coming to their views conducted a pall into their neurons. Ramira, Adalina, and Kimi's hearts split over how the East reduced their pen pals to battered messes. They wasted no time in taking Brett and Brett to the nearest emergency room, saving their lives with surgeries and medications that took many weeks out of their lives. But in the end, the pain, restrictions, and desires to end it all were no match for the new leases on life and prosperous futures that pushed them to persevere. How they fully recovered 
from the brutalities that tore them apart were absolute mysteries to their doctors and loved ones alike. But they suspected that God gave their bodies a fresh start. When the time came to leave the hospital, Kiana and Ramira, Brett and Adelina, and Kimmy and Rhett departed in a limousine radiating its ruby and gold luster. They rode palm on palm and shoulder on shoulder, seeing the brightness of their future and love from Adelino and his wife, Courtenay. Although their skies were sunny, dark clouds stormier than the nether regions moved into the horizon, having turmoils by the kiloton in their visible masses, and as fate would have it, God's alleged intervention would open the door for Satan to exploit it for his own depraved agenda, a list of items that'll reduce to rubble all in its path. And that, my dystoblicans, was Kiana's darkest hour. Thank you so much for your listening ears, and please be sure to share this show with everyone you know, and make sure they share it with everyone they know. Send me your questions and feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And I highly urge you to support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. Supporting the show ensures that its financial and creative autonomies are maximized. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another episode of the Dystopian Republic.